0: welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
1: Smart hey everybody welcome to smart people podcast this is Chris and this is John thanks for tuning in this week we got a killer show one that I don't think we've touched this subject yet in 87 or so episodes right
0: I believe we have not
1: uh, but it's a very pertinent one and it's really it's enthralling I mean it's one of those ones I really wanted to listen to every part of the episode even if you're interested or not interested, which I think that's what we do a lot on the podcast. You might not know you're interested in it, but we make you. (laughs) We're going to talk to Dr. Paul Ruggieri about his book, Confessions of a Surgeon. And I'm pretty sure you can imagine what we're going to talk about. John, you want to tell him a little bit more about Dr. Ruggieri?
0: Sure. He is a practicing general surgeon, but also a writer. (laughs) He wrote this book as well as some other books that are more, I guess, patient-oriented books. He co-authored those with some people. Mm-hmm. But he went to Georgetown University School of Medicine right in our backyard. Oh, yeah. And then he completed his surgical training at Barnes Hospital, Washington University School of Medicine. As you mentioned in the interview, he was active duty. He did that for three years. Mm-hmm. All-around good guy. You know, he was giving up his time for uh, for dinner for us.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. And he, I think one of the coolest parts is the way he talks in his book about different cases, I mean, his whole idea is opening up the OR doors. You know, when if you've ever been in for a surgery, you kind of go in, you're a little nervous, they put you to sleep, and you wake up. Very few kind of know what goes on. We touch on the subject in this interview, and he does a good job in his book. So we're going to turn it over to Dr. Ruggieri here in a, here in a minute. I did want to say thank you to the few of you that bought us a hashtag drink. Obviously, they're not drinks, but donations are accepted and we need them to continue the podcast. So feel free to go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash drink and throw us a couple bucks if you like the show, whatever you think it's worth. Did it entertain you for 30 minutes? Did you hate it? Then don't give us anything. Did you love it? Give us a couple
0: bucks. Yeah, and don't forget to head over to iTunes, leave us a rating, a comment, and if you haven't subscribed, do so. It's easy. It's one button. Click it. Chris, I have something that I want to show you. Okay. It didn't come out as cool as I wanted. Oh, boy. But I figure, why not do this live on air? Check this Uh, out.
1: Oh, snap. Wow, that is pretty awesome. Did you buy two of them?
0: Can you please tell people what you hold in your hand? This isn't television. We'll put a
1: picture on the web. This is awesome. This is an iPhone case with our logo, and it looks really kick-ass. Oh my gosh, this is awesome.
0: Yeah, it's a white iPhone 5 Yeah, Smart People Podcast Edition iPhone case. Can people order these from us? I've got a couple extra that we're going to give away in a Twitter contest. A tweet-off. Yeah, so go to smartpeoplepodcast.com and check out the post for Paul Ruggieri to see exactly what you have to do to get some of these cases. Plus, you can take a look at the cases, and if we get enough people who actually want one, we can get a run of them made and people can buy them. And that's another way that you can help support the show. Yeah, they're super sweet, a white iPhone 5K. So let us know if you if you want some. Got to follow
1: Roach's instruction for Twitter. And if we get enough orders, maybe we will do that in general. So enough about us. Thanks so much for listening. This is a great episode. Enjoy Dr. Paul Ruggieri, Confessions of a Surgeon. I'm so excited to talk to you today because I never really thought about the fact that most people don't know what happens during a surgery because they're out. And one of the things I actually, the term "white coat of silence," I'd never heard until I was reading your website. So I was thinking we could start off and you could explain to us what that white coat of silence is.
2: Well, the white coat, coat of silence, white coat, coat of silence.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah, that.
2: Well, actually, that's a that's a term that I made up. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, have you heard of the blue coat of silence relating to policemen and law enforcement? I mean, have you heard of that concept? I mean, this is the concept that I made up applying to my profession, the white coat, obviously, physicians wearing white coats, coat of silence. Well, I think in any profession, uh, particularly my profession, over the years, we've been very reluctant to talk about a lot of things, to criticize colleagues, to say what we really think. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm gifted that as, as anybody else. So in, in some ways, that's that's good and bad. I mean, it, it's bad in a sense that really there are things that should be talked about that go unsaid that could affect somebody's life, could affect the ways somebody gets treated. Uh, If there's a a bad surgeon in the community that's been operating for a long time and nobody speaks up, he's going to continue to operate and hurt people. Uh, I have firsthand experience with this, and I wrote about it in the book. Uh, But my true belief is total transparency in whatever I do in life, particularly in medicine. I'm very honest with my patients. I tell them up front, you know, I'm not perfect. This could happen. It has happened. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves in regards to our colleagues and just ourselves. Uh, towards patients and patients need to know everything.
1: And that's funny because oftentimes, I know I do, and I think a lot of people look at surgeons kind of as these omnipotent, almost, I don't want to say godlike, but you do hold lives in your hand oftentimes. And do nerves come into play? Do do you ever get nervous? Um, do most surgeons, are there things you worry about constantly or that you don't want to do? Because Oftentimes, like you said, we see the side of surgeons that are, I know how to do this, don't worry, you'll be fine. But you kind of talk a little bit about how that's not always the case.
2: It's not always the case. I'm human. I'm not perfect in medicine. I'm not perfect in my own life. And we try to be. We strive to be. We have to be perfect. We, try. we have to try to be perfect. Because when we're not perfect, people get hurt. When a stockbroker's not perfect, people lose money. Well, so what? You can always make more money. But when somebody gets hurt permanently... You know, I have to live with that. But yeah, you know, surgeons in general have been held to much higher plane than most physicians, and, and it's partly in their their own doing. They want to be in that plane, that on that mountain. I mean, uh, I do at times. You know, we're we're very egocentric. We have to be. We have to have an ego. We have to have confidence in ourselves for what, in order to do what we do. Uh, but that can go a little too far. And, you know, sure, that, I'm very confident when I do but I, I do get very nervous. Of course I do. I'm human, like you.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I
2: get scared shitless sometimes when I'm doing certain emergencies, but I, I can't think about it. i got to keep doing what I'm doing, what I've been trying to do. Otherwise, the patient's not going to get off the table. I'm not going to solve a problem if I get too nervous. I, I can't afford to get too nervous. But, yeah, I get nervous as hell. When I hear about something coming in the emergency room that I need to take to the operating room, I don't know. Maybe we internalize it better than most people, but every surgeon will... Well, every they may not tell you they get nervous, if they don't tell you, they are lying. Because <laughs> we all do get nervous. A heart rate does race when we're doing certain things. When somebody's bleeding out from a damaged spleen, you only have a half hour so to get that person to the operative and get it out before they bleed to death. How can you not be nervous?
1: I would imagine so, and I guess it's just the fact that the face that a lot of them put on— and what maybe what we want to tell ourselves that, you know, because it's scary to be like, yeah, go ahead and try and make sure I live, but if, if you're kind of worried about it, no big deal, you know?
2: I mean, we have to portray confidence to patients. I have to be confident. Otherwise, you know, a patient's going to look at me across the desk and say, oh, this guy's a little shaky. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, of course you have to portray it. You have to have an aura of confidence. We all do, and we are confident in, in many ways in what we do. The flip side is we have to know our limitations we extend ourselves, if I do something I'm not comfortable with, that could lead to problems. You can. you got to know your own limitations on what you're good at and what you're not good at.
1: Now, kind of talking about confidence, does that come primarily from time? And in that case, if, if that's true, then should I be nervous if I'm being operated on by a 30-year-old or, you know, something, someone who's a little younger? I mean, how does that unfold over time?
2: The answer is yes and no. Yes, you should be nervous <laughs> uh, in the sense that uh, that person, I'm sure he, he, he if he's stamped as qualified, board certified, he is stamped by the scientists that we have who do this, who privilege us to operate. So that's all we can say to that person. So that person is qualified to operate, to do whatever procedure he's, he's, he or she is doing on you. So... They have to be confident in that regard, but they don't have the experience. If they get into trouble, they have maybe some of the younger surgeons haven't had enough experience and haven't had the complications that I that I have had, I've had to deal with on a physical and emotional level to get patients through that. So in some ways, yes, they don't have the experience, but in other ways, they may have the experience in more technology and and operations that are on the cutting edge today than someone who's 55 or 60 who. I have to go back and learn it. On the flip side, I mean, I, I have a lot of experience, and uh, pretty much I've had happen to be every complication known to man, and I've dealt with it. So I have experience in dealing with complications. We're all going to get them. It's just a matter of time. You have to have experience in dealing with them, getting patients through them. And also, I know my limitations. I'm confident in myself that I know my limitations. I can sit across the desk at a patient and say, I, I just don't want to do this operation on you, but I can find somebody who's better at it than I am.
1: No, that makes sense. As a general surgeon or in the ER, do most surgeons in that environment have experience with a lot of things, or do you still have your specialties? I mean, I really don't know a lot about the field, so it's interesting to, to kind of learn this aspect.
2: Well, that's a good question. General surgeons are trained primarily in abdominal surgery, but they're also trained in neck surgery. The general surgeons, they, they're jack-of-all-trades. They do what has to be done. Those were the old days. Now, the new days... General surgeons come out of training, many actually uh, do fellowship training in something more specialized or they want to specialize in something more well, more defined. Like, for instance, I do a lot of thyroid surgery in my practice. Now, you don't do a lot of thyroid surgery during good training. You have to kind of look for it and promote yourself and be good at it, first of all, to get a reputation. And that's what I like to do personally, but I'm also a general surgeon. I I will train a buttock abscess in the emergency room when I'm on call because Mm -hmm. that's what I also do. But we all have individual niches. I mean, there are general surgeons who like to do breast surgery. There are general surgeons who like to do some other type of surgery. Everybody has their own niche. uh, And you're not going to know that unless you ask the surgeon or the surgeon tells you. But we we all do many things. And as time goes on, as you you get older, for instance, you kind of start honing your practice down to the things that you do well, Mm -hmm. me personally anyway.
1: What would you consider to be—and I know you talk about it a little bit in your book— but what is the hardest part or the worst part of your job or ha- of any of the different roles within, you know, surgery and, and being a doctor that you've had to perform?
2: Yeah, I think the worst part is really telling somebody, uh, giving somebody bad news, not mm-hmm. a bio, uh that it's cancer. I mean, I I know I have a good feeling when I see somebody in the office, I feel a lump or a mass somewhere that this is going to be bad news. I mean, I don't tell them. I kind of prepare patients for the inevitable until I get a pathology report, but just sitting down with someone and telling them oh, this is a cancerous thyroid gland, this is a cancerous lymph node, that's not fun at all. You don't learn that in during training. You'll you, you learn it within yourself after you're out there. <laughs> they don't teach that. They don't teach you how to do that. You have to kind of find it within yourself to do that. And obviously telling somebody in emergency trauma situations that, you know, if they die in the operating room, they didn't make it, going out and telling the family they didn't make it. Uh, you get more of that. Early on in your training, I mean, early on in your practice, even during residency, when you do a lot of trauma, you see a lot of trauma. That's not fun either. Bringing bad news, and usually as a surgeon, you're the one bringing it because they refer internists and other specialties refer you cases to do procedures so you can diagnose cancer, and then you're the one that has to bring the bad news to the
0: patient. I have a quick follow-on question to that because you said they don't really train you during school on... How to give bad news and, and that kind of thing, and have having to sit down with a family or or a patient after your first time of having to give bad news. How did you? I mean, how did you take that, and how did you move past it, and realize that you know, okay, this might be one of many times that I have to do this because I, I can imagine that the first time that you actually had to give bad news was just awful.
2: It was, but it was worse for the family, obviously.
0: Right, yeah.
2: I mean, it's not, not a bit of a family, but it, it is awful. And you're sweating, you're shaking, your heart's racing, and you have to try to remain calm. And you just do it. I mean, I, I remember just blowing it out, telling the family this is what it is, you know, in a, in a compassionate way. That's, that's, that's all you can do, I think. You don't want to get beat around the bush. You don't want to say this or this. You just get it out there. And the key is hopefully, you've had time to prepare them for the bad news. That's the key. In a way, you have to prepare a patient or a family for bad news if you know it's coming. If you blindside them, it's just harder to break the news to them. It's harder for them to accept. And it doesn't get easy every time you do it. I mean, it lingers, but you can't let it linger because there's something else coming down the pike. There's another patient coming down the pike with more bad news or good news. You just can't let it linger. You'll never be able to get through the day that might have a career. Right, it'll be a basket case. I mean, you'll be you'll be a basket case.
1: It well, it won't be fair to the next guy either, like you said.
2: No, it, it, you, you'll be an emotional wreck. You'll not, you'll never make it through your career.
0: So I imagine right. it takes a very obviously a very strong type of person and a, and a special type of person that can just get past that and say, okay, you know, it's on to the next person that I have to try to save and help. I find it to be incredible because I think my nerves would be sh- so shaken or shattered. That could have been it. The first time I told somebody bad news, it might affect the rest of my day, week, month, however long.
2: Oh, it does. You never forget. You, you never, it, it, it's there. You kind of put it away in a little spot in your brain or your heart.
0: You just hmm.
2: lock it away. I mean, you, you can't let it come out. What's interesting now is a, as I'm older. I'm seeing patients that are younger than I am with cancer, or things, bad things, and I have to tell them, and I'm thinking, you know, this could be me. You know, this person's younger than I am, and this person has a cancer. I'm starting to kind of personalize a little bit more, which worries me.
1: I actually had a question on that. I was thinking, as a surgeon, you see this all the time, and you see good things. You know, I don't want to just concentrate on the bad, but you see good things, and you see bad things, and you see life and how fickle it is. How has that changed your views on the world, on your day-to-day activities, on your family, on your passions, you know? What, what has that done to you as a person over time?
2: Well, uh, I think it, it makes you humble, first of all. Uh, I know I'm not invincible, and, and I'm at an age where things happen to you. I mean, one day you wake up and something happens your life has changed forever. I mean, personally, I, I don't work as hard as I used to. I try not to. I try to go home when the day is done and not linger. I, I mean, I want to enjoy life because it's short uh, and it's getting shorter. So uh, from a work standpoint, I mean, I, I, I just, the hospital's not my life. It's a good part of it still, but it's, it used to be my life all the time, but it's not now. You, know, you just have to leave it behind when you go home and enjoy life, take vacations, enjoy, enjoy things that you do. Most surgeons are workaholics. Most surgeons will work until they drop, Hmm. and and that's what they do. They're used to it, so it's kind of sad in a way.
1: Have you changed your daily actions, or say your diet, or your exercise, or are you more cautious now so you don't go skydiving or anything like that due to what you see in the OR, people coming in, different pathologies, things like that?
0: Well, not not really.
2: I mean, I've always exercised. uh, Knock on wood, I've always been pretty good shape. I've always been active. uh, I haven't changed a whole lot in God. I just changed the time that I spend at the hospital. <laughs> I try to spend more of it right at home and I'm taking more vacations because early on we worked all the time and you didn't take any time off. But I'll take days off here and there. I'll just kind of get myself away from it more. But as far as the day to day stuff, I'm just trying to enjoy it more. Simple things, anything. Work is always going to be there. And I know someday I'm going to wake up and there's going to be something and me that's going
1: to have to be treated that happens to wow. all of us. Yeah, that is just a it's just a scary thought. Now, you mentioned how hard people work, how hard surgeons work and it's a part of their life. And I am fascinated by that. I do know a couple of doctors and have seen them work, you know, 18, 24, 30, I think 36 hour shifts a while back. You must love that. I mean, I couldn't do that for anything. I couldn't play baseball for that long. I couldn't do anything for that period of time. What does it take? How do you do that? Do you want to do it? Well,
2: there's I did. Oh, I reveled in it. Believe me. Uh, during training, see, I trained in a little different era. The training today is, is not as rigorous. The hours is, is a number of hours you can only work uh, a week. Uh, so there's, there's, limited hours and that you can, that you can put into the hospital. But uh, when I was in residency, I, I loved it. You know, I just loved it. That's all I wanted to do. And even when I came out of residency in early practice, all you want to do is operate and work. It's in you. I mean, if you don't, if, you know, if, if it wasn't in you, you shouldn't go into surgery. You shouldn't be there. But as time goes on, you know that's, that changes. Uh, that changes. Now, occasionally I'll be up all night operating. I don't look forward to it at all because I'm beat the next day, the next next couple of days. You know, as you get older, it's harder to keep that pace up. It really is. It's not fun anymore. It's not. And if I can avoid it, uh, I'll avoid it.
0: I mean, you say that you, you have to want to do it. When in your life did you realize that this was something that you wanted to do, that this was something that you had the, the confidence in you to do? What led you to want to become a surgeon?
2: Well, I think in medical school, I when I went to medical school, uh, as I went through school, I, wanted to, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I experienced the different specialties. Surgeons do things. They do things with their hands. Things get done right away. As a surgeon, you see a disease gallbladder or a of appendix, you take it out, they get better, they go home. You don't rely on medicine. You don't rely on anything. You rely on yourself and your hands. So uh, in that regard, i become the person I am. I think most surgeons are that way. They're doers. They just want to do things, not rely on anything else, see things occur instantly. So I, I kind of knew that. That was in me early on, and surgery was a perfect fit. Uh, I mean, it was hard work. It was gratifying work, and you relied on yourself.
1: How can you prepare yourself to do something like crack a rib cage you know cut somebody open and pull something out or uh, is that just born in you or do surgeons just go into it loving that stuff? It, that is disgusting to me i would <laughs> pass out i would you know it, i mean i wish i didn't i find it fascinating don't get me wrong but yeah and yeah. i did medical sales for a very short stint and i saw some really cool surgeries knee reconstructions with bones flying everywhere but to actually sure. do it, oh my God, I just I don't I don't get it.
2: Well, there's some pretty gross things out there. There are. I get grossed out occasionally. <laughs> you, know, you, you do. But what you got to do? You're, you get your hands in the middle of something, uh, a, a perforated colon with stool everywhere. You grossed out, but Ugh. you got to keep going. Otherwise, these patients are going to get off the table. This is what your job is. This is what you do. Yeah, you get grossed out. I do. But I don't know. You just become immune to it after a while. You're just going to focus on what you're doing. You just stay focused. That's The other thing that surgeons uh, are uniquely qualified to do is they're very focused individuals, focused on what they have to do regardless of what's going on around them. You know, There's blood flowing out of this patient onto the floor, and you're trying to grab a blood vessel that's been cut. You've you, you got to stay focused to do it, or that's it. But there are things that gross you out. And you'll know right away when you're into, or in medical school, anatomy class, I mean, you see a, a cadaver. There are people that can't deal with that; they pass out. know, the operating room, the first time they pass out, they can't deal with it, so they don't go into surgery. <laughs> huh. to something else.
1: No, that's a good point. I guess you would kind of learn it as you go. The other thing is, though, do you ever just look back, or while you're in a surgery, not that you stop and think about it, but and realize how amazing the human body actually is? Is are there? Has there ever been a time that you've been kind of caught off guard, like, wow, that you know, I can't believe the heart can pump for a hundred years, or what the lungs do, or, or the eyes, or something like that?
2: Well, it's kind of cool, actually, you think about it. You know, it usually happens during medical school when you're experiencing this stuff uh, and learning about it. It's, it is. The human body is a fascinating machine, uh, but people in general, as you go along in training, they're really even more incredible, some of the people that you meet and that you, uh, things happen to or that you do something to, and they survive. There's a woman in my book I wrote about, a perforated colon, and uh, her name is Maria. So it's, uh, I mean, this woman had everything happen to her. I mean, she had a foot half in the grave for several months, but she survived. Her body made it through the, the trauma of surgery, of abscesses, of all kinds of other problems, but she survived. Uh, and that's truly amazing to me. There are a couple of stories like that in the book, that the human spirit really pulls people through. The body is fascinating, but the human spirit is even more fascinating.
1: One of the things I know you talk about in the book is the difficulty of treating criminals. And I I think it's kind of pertinent now, given I was listening to or reading an article or something about the Boston bombers and how when, when the one brother came in, they knew he was a suspect, but they still had to try and treat him and save his life. And you always hear the surgeons say, you know, once they come in the door, it's our responsibility just to save the life and everything. And you know, every person out there is going, "Screw it, just let him go." Anything like that? Could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Uh, it's funny you mention that because I was thinking the exact same thoughts <laughs> about this uh, when that person. Where, where are you located? What
1: place um, do you? On? We're we're right near Washington D.C. Oh,
2: you're in D.C. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I mean, this the second suspect who's alive was what uh, you know. The first suspect apparently was dead on arrival. There was no chance. Okay. Uh, they probably went through the they probably went through the motions, but uh, the second suspect was alive. And when he was brought to the hospital in Boston, I was thinking, you know, the, the surgeons that are treating him are looking at him and like, well, this guy's responsible for what four deaths, right? Under some people, and here we have to keep him alive. <laughs> and there's an episode in the book I write about. I took care of a person who shot up a courtroom, and we had to keep him alive. You know. You do what you're trying to do, and no matter what you're thinking. Uh, and this guy in the book, I, yeah, I wish he would have died. I didn't want to take him to the operating room. I don't want to be up all night saving this guy's life, but
0: I did. I was going to say, you're putting so much time and effort into saving somebody that did such terrible thing in everybody's eyes. I was thinking about with with the Boston bomber, there were still patients in that same hospital as the result of the bombing that yeah. he took place in. So I, yeah, I mean, I just, I have to yeah. give it to the surgeons there that can look past that. Part of me wants to think, hey, if we can keep this guy alive, we can find motive and all that kind of stuff. But sure, another sure. part of me, I'd just be like, well, sorry, bud. That's like resources. Yeah. See you later.
2: <laughs> well, no, that's true. That is, that is, I was, again, I was thinking the exact same thing, when, that there are patients in that hospital that were there because of this person. Right. And he is there now. Uh But, uh, yeah, they do want to keep them alive for obvious reasons. Um, But uh, we live in a society today that this this is what doctors do, take an oath. And for for most people, that oath supersedes anything, for most, not all, but most. It does. It just does. And if it doesn't, then you need to not do that anymore.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've been doing this for a long time. I know you served in the military active duty, and you've done a number of different things within the field. What have you seen that has changed the most over time in terms of both technology and in terms of what you're treating more, what you're what what you're seeing more in people that come in in patients? To,
2: uh, surgery, uh, I mean technology when laparoscopic minimally invasive surgery came along in the late 80s early 90s that revolutionized everything. That changed everything. Uh, surgery up until that point was pretty stagnant. Uh, it was pretty boring. Uh, I mean, it was effective, but when laparoscopic minimally invasive surgery came along, patients were getting going home sooner. They were recovering faster. The incisions were smaller. That, that just changed everything. And uh, I was fortunate to, to train during that era. Now it's the robotic technology. I don't know if you know anything about that or heard anything about that. That's the latest thing out there. It's kind of a variant of minimally invasive surgery using a robot with a surgeon sitting in a console. That uh, That's talked about now is even taking it further uh, possibly. The, minute, the development of, of minimally invasive surgery changed everything. For, for surgeons, uh, particularly as far as patients go, they're sicker, they're older, uh, they're harder to take care of. Uh, There's no question we're living longer, we're coming down with things because we're living longer. Obesity is a big problem in this country. What, this country's obese and they have their own problems, medical. More, problems. You operate on somebody who's obese, has a higher risk of complications, wound infections, all kinds of bad stuff. The patients in general are harder to take care of and they're sicker going into the operating room.
0: You would think that that would be a perfect storm of people realizing that they're living longer, so they need to take care of their bodies better because you're bound to have something happen to you at a certain point. And if you are obese and Going into a room for surgery, there's a good chance that you're not going to come out alive. It just it surprises me that knowing that and knowing the ramifications of that, we are where we are today in society in terms of, I guess, size.
2: Well, you would think, but uh, unfortunately, obesity rate is just increasing. Uh, you know, there's no good answer for it, uh, and it's putting a big stress on the healthcare system in general, not just from doctor's standpoint, but from an uh,
0: economic standpoint. Are you guys seeing more surgeries related to obesity? I mean, obviously, joints and, and that kind of thing wears faster when you've got more weight on it. I mean, are you seeing younger people and more people coming in with knee problems or hip problems or anything of that that nature?
2: Well, they are, They have. I mean, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I operate in the belly, but I, I see intra-abdominal processes that are more advanced in obese people. But for the problem with operating on anybody who's obese, is they're a higher risk for complications afterwards. They stay in the hospital longer. It's not an uh, optimal situation to operate on somebody. Uh, and there are problems in obese patients that are just too complex that I don't operate on. Uh, I'll send them to uh, an academic center to get operated on. Hmm. It's it too much work for me. And I write about this in the book. I mean, I talk about a patient in the operating room, in the operating room with, that uh, deals with this very topic.
1: By the way, and we'll tell everybody where to find your book, but it is incredible, Confessions of a Surgeon. I mean, what drove you to write that? Was it like, you know what, I need this story to be told. I've seen so much. I want others to know.
2: Exactly. I've been wanting to write this book for like 10 years.
1: Okay. Uh, It's
2: been in my mind for about 10 years. I started to write some a a while back, stopped. It was just something I've always wanted to do. I wanted to be totally honest about what I was thinking, what I was feeling about patients, about certain topics. And it was funny, every time I would write a chapter, and I would show it to my wife, and she would say, you sure you want to say this? <laughs> and I said, yeah, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to say it this way. Uh, but it, it's just something that was in me, and I just wanted to do it and, and get it out there and uh, let patients, people and patients know that we're human, we strive to be perfect, but we're not. My, my main goal is to, to be totally transparent uh, on, on how I feel and what I do.
1: I really appreciate you a being on the show and b writing this and kind of sharing your experience with the world. Again, that's confessions of a surgeon. Could you also tell our listeners, you know, I, I know you have a website and uh, where they can kind of find out more about you and the book and the things you write about.
2: Sure. The book is available in any bookstore. You can go in any bookstore if it's not there. They can order for you. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all, all the major internet outlets My websites, www.paulrogeri.com.
1: And we will put a link to that on our website as well. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. I I can't hold you up from dinner any longer, but this has been amazing. Really appreciate it. And I know a lot of our listeners will enjoy reading Confessions of a Surgeon coming up here.
2: Well, I uh, appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, guys.
1: All right. Have a great night. Have a good Saturday. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.
0: welcome back hope you guys enjoyed the episode this week don't forget support us over at the website smart peoplepodcast.com slash drink the amazon banners there too if yeah, you need to but. make
1: purchases yeah yeah but, but tell but them why what. else they need to go to the website this week
0: and we're also putting a another two or three minute clip could be three or four minutes i'm not sure how long it is it's a, a great question why we though. haven't even edited the episode yet <laughs> so once it's up there you guys can check it out Chris asked Paul a couple of extra questions and he gave some really cool answers yeah but so. I
1: asked him what the most shocking thing he has ever seen is like well, come I mean, on I you don't want to know how know much you
0: wanted to give away right I now I want to
1: tell them they should go check that out just go to the website smartfieldpodcast.com check out the Paul Ruggieri blog post and you will get to hear something friggin disgusting about what he saw <laughs> so thanks for listening again we appreciate it hope you guys enjoy the show it's all for fun here Tune in next week. Really awesome episode. We're going to talk about how to make things viral and some interesting things about why ideas catch on.
0: Support the show.